This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, time to visit the suicide booth. Hello everyone, I am Gepwin. I'm joined as always by my good friend Dr. Izix. Hi! And this is Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique review something or other mishmash of random things we feel like this week show. Indeed, the, the, the episode of the day is going to be whatever we feel like, really. Yeah. Hooray. Though today what we, we get to like. talk about <laughs> war. Yes. Which I don't know, if, is, is that what we felt like? That doesn't... Um. I feel tired, but, you know, we could talk about war, yeah? Let's talk about war. <laughs> this week, we watched Star Trek original series, A Taste of Armageddon, mm-hmm. which is one of the better episodes. Yeah, in fact, you know, I was going to say that, uh, you know, this is maybe one of my favorite episodes so far, uh, if not the fa- you know favorite. Uh, yeah, I so, think so. Yeah. It's actually it's a real great. standout. It has some definite problems that we're going to get into, but overall, yeah. it's a very good very very good episode especially compared to a lot of the other stuff we've been watching pretty well formed it has sort of a uh, cohesive message uh you know that sure there's like a couple things it's like okay this that's kind of happening there and this character's kind of annoying but you know that happens yeah it holds together it didn't really drag at all there was a lot more going on it has a cohesive theme throughout mm-hmm. it has like one woman in a ridiculous outfit but she's not really a love interest this time Though there is the you know, the appropriate music that almost applies like such. <laughs> yeah, though they play more or less the same thing when he's staring at a wall in this episode. So That is true. Oh, <laughs> uh, this episode was written by Robert Hamner and Gene L. Kuhn. Kuhn we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamner has some random writing credits, so I don't think he shows up in Star Trek all that often. Yeah, I think I think this one might be his only at least original series. Let me double check. Yeah, the only time he shows he does anything with Star Trek. Yeah, it did didn't episode over the time tunnel. Yes, the time tunnel. And speaking of the time tunnel, we also have an actor who appeared on the time tunnel, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits. Name a sci-fi show from this era, and he was on it basically. Yes. Uh, I am going to mispronounce his name slightly. This is uh, yes. <laughs> David Abatoshu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think who- it's close enough. Yeah, I, I even heard it. I was listening to an interview yesterday where they said his name. I was like, I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> this is apparently his stage name. Ah, he he had a, a other, like he, his father uh, was apparently a famous, I, I do not have that page in front of me, even though I should. His father is a fairly well-known uh, Yiddish writer. Hmm. And this last name was one that his father adopted as a pen name, and then he adopted as a stage name. Ah, so sort of, uh, this is the notoriety, so let's keep on uh, going with it here. Yeah, it's it's similar to their actual last name, which again, I didn't, I didn't pull up the page. I should have. Oh, well, that's on me. I'm tired today. <laughs> we're, we're both exhausted, but for different reasons. <laughs> yes. He plays a character called Anon Seven. He, he, he's sort of, uh, you know... Uh, I guess the main antagonist of today's episode. Yeah, pretty much. He's he's not ex- he's sort of a bad ki- bad guy character. They do a good job with the nuance and the antagonists this time. Yes. They also all have numbers instead of last names, which is something they never really go into or comment upon. Well, you know, it's, it's just you know different cultures, I guess. <laughs> I suppose it fits thematically with the episode in a depressing way. We can talk about later. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Barbara Babcock playing Mia 3, who is the yeah, other she's... of the main aliens we interact with. And she's been, uh, been in tons of stuff, including Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. <laughs> Probably her best known role. Uh, yeah, a few other lots of little things. Uh, Gene Lyons plays Ambassador Robert Fox, who is our resident, uh, I don't know, high-ranking moron for the episode, I suppose. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, you know. I, I, in my notes, I called him Ambassador No Fun a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, remember a few episodes ago on uh, Galileo 7... We had the weird administrator dude who basically just told them to hurry the plot along. Yes, yeah, so I am your ticking clock. Surprise! Yeah, same guy. Yes. Same character, <laughs> just different motivation. Yes. <laughs> like, I need to order you to do something stupid, otherwise the plot doesn't happen. At least they brought in a new guy to be stupid this time, instead of the crew themselves just being stupid. Yes, uh, in fact, uh, the, the crew seemed, for the most part, uh, kind of on their game today. I know. It's surprising. Well, I guess they got some experience so far. It's like, we've run into a lot of weird stuff. Maybe we should, like, think about this a little bit. <laughs> Finally, in sort, of a, in sort of a minor role, but still the most, probably the next most notable guest star, we have um, Miko Mayama, who plays the resident yeoman for the episode, Yeoman Tamura. Yes. She was in a number of other things, uh, including uh, MASH, I think, and... Uh... That's all that I remember. <laughs> yeah, I think MASH. <laughs> She's been in a few things. Most of these people have been in a few things overall. Like, we're only going to comment hugely on people you've probably recognized, given that this was, like, 50 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's yeah. unlikely you'll be familiar with people who were heavy into television in this era. There's also a couple, you know, other random guys, like a couple crewmen, things like that as well. Yeah, there's but. like two security guards, a bunch of random aliens who are running around, etc., etc. Oh, let's just jump in. Uh, yes. We have a lot of themes to talk about in this episode, so let's see how mm. long this one lasts. Let's go. Let's roll. The Enterprise is waiting for a response to their communiques to planet Aminiar 7. They have on board Ambassador Fox, who has been tasked with opening diplomatic relationships with the planet. When they finally do receive a reply, it is something called a Code 710 that apparently means under no circumstances should a ship ever approach this planet ever. Now, is this like the uh, the the planet from the Menagerie? If you go there, you, you're 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 killed automatically by a super court martial, or is this just sort of a just just don't mind bother? Well, this is the planet themselves saying don't come here, Ooh, which nice. like given that this planet is uncontacted, is talked about as being an end of planet sovereignty, they basically are going to be like disregarding their borders if yep. they do this. So, should we go up to this planet that obviously doesn't want us there? Yeah, apparently, because Ambassador <laughs> Fox orders them to disregard the warning. Yep. <laughs> he says that in the last 20 years, they have lost thousands of lives in this sector of space that could have been saved if they had a treaty port in this area. Wait, wait. Maybe there's some connection between this lack of treaty port, people di- dying, and maybe this planet where they say, don't come here. Maybe. They never really go into this. It wasn't until the second time I watched it that I think he just means they don't have a, like, resource base in this area. 
So, like, if a ship gets in trouble anywhere near here, they don't have anywhere to go. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of, you know, uh, you know echoes, uh, you know, old time, uh, you know, colonialism as well as like more modern, like uh, U.S. military bases, which are just sort of dotted all over the place. Yeah. Like, well, we need a resupply area here. Yeah, it's more like a Pacific Island resupply base yeah. idea. Oh, as Kirk and company prepare to beam down to Aminiar, Spock reports what little they know of the planet. It is an advanced civilization with spaceflight, but they have never left their own star system. They were last contacted about 50 years ago, and they were at war with their neighboring planet. The ship that made contact, and they called the Valiant, never returned. Oh, this is getting more spooky by the moment here, guys. Maybe we should, like, I don't know, heed the warning. Yeah, they... They just, I want to just say, like, we, we chastise the crew a lot for not knowing what they're doing. But everyone in this episode is like, we should not do this. And the dumb ambassador is like, it is my mission to men and I'm going to override all common sense and like the rules to make you do this. Yes. No, no common sense allowed. This is diplomacy. This guy just, he's just so full of himself. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Kirk, Spock, their yeoman for the episode Timora, and two security guards beam down to the planet, and their arrival was anticipated by a young woman we are introduced to as Mia 3, who congratulates them on beaming down to their division of control. Oh, yeah, that's, that's very convenient. So this is like the, the control of the entire planet, or why? They don't. They, it's just control. Okay. As they walk to meet the council... She says that she wishes that they hadn't actually come because, you know, we told you not to and it's dangerous. Well, I think we should point out so far that everything we've seen is this planet looks beautiful. Everything is, you know, orderly. There's like giant skyscrapers and there's green grass and everything. Everything seems fine. Kirk even points out that he hasn't seen any danger here, but she insists that it is there. But now that they have arrived, they have to be hospitable to them because, you know, what else are you going to do? It's like, you're on our doorstep, so I guess we got to be nice. <laughs> she brings them to the leader of their planet, I guess, named Anon7. Hello. Kirk explains that he is there to open diplomatic relations, but Anon says that that is impossible because they are at war with their neighboring planet, Vendikar. Oh. which is an ex-colony. They've been at war for about 500 years at this point. So so this is not going to be ending anytime soon then. Yes. I do like this because we've been at war for 500 years. And Kirk says, well, you hide it well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, my notes like, Kirk's just like, really? <laughs> Spock reports that their civilization seems very advanced. The planet is very, very peaceful, and they have absolutely no evidence that there's a war going on. Everything seems great. Anand says that their casualties actually number in the millions every year. Holy crap, really? Yeah, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of people. He's, mm -hmm. He says it's like between one and three million each year. Ouch, that's that's horrible. Uh, where, where's this you know, front of battle? What? Where, where are, where's all this going on? This is madness. There is an alarm, and Adon says that Vendikar has launched an attack. A wall slides open to show a large computer control room. Mm -hmm. Mia is distressed as the map lights up, and she explains that there's been a hit in the city. Oh no, that's just terrible. Uh, should we take cover? <laughs> yeah, Kirk and Spock didn't hear any explosions. Tamura scans and doesn't pick up anything on her tricorder. And even when they ask the ship, they have seen absolutely no signs of an attack. 
This seems very suspicious. Yes. In the war room, another map screen lights up, and Anand laments that this is what they warned them about, and it's exactly what happened 50 years ago. Mm. Anand returns from his little war room thing, and Kirk is very upset that everything has gone weird and accuses him of playing some sort of game. But Anand tells him that that attack just killed half a million people. That's, that's terrible. Uh, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He orders a counterattack, which they begin inputting into the computer, and Spock realizes that they are actually fighting their entire war only with computers. So it's all just simulated war. It's just, uh, you know, you, you basically are playing a massive game of civilization against another, another planet. Yes. Kirk says computers don't kill half a million people. Anand says that the deaths have been registered, and everyone who was killed has 24 hours to report to a disintegration chamber. What? Yes. <laughs> Anand continues to explain that no civilization could ever survive being at war for 500 years, but they found a solution. Attacks are launched mathematically, people die in the simulation, but the civilization continues. So what you're saying is that you are basically, you know, you're playing your, your, your war game, and then people still die anyway. Yes. Hmm. Spock says there's a certain logic to it. Anon says he's glad he approves, but Spock says, I do not approve. I understand. Yeah, I, th I think I'm with Spock here. It's, uh, it's like, still, what the hell? <laughs> yes. Anon tells Kirk that since they came here, despite his warnings, the Enterprise has been registered as destroyed and the crew must now report for disintegration. Oh, that sucks. Later, Kirk and company have been taken to a holding room, even though the landing party has not been counted as casualties. Yeah, well, they need some leverage. They need some collateral, you know, just in case. Yeah, they're just holding them prisoner to coerce the ship. Mia enters to see if they need anything, and Kirk demands to see Anon. But she says that this is impossible. Uh, Kirk makes some veiled threat, but Mia explains that all this is their duty, and that she in fact, has been counted as one of the casualties and has to report to a disintegration chamber by noon tomorrow. So so I, I do have one kind of observation here that Mia was like in the council chamber during the attack or like right next to, uh, door to it. Uh, so she apparently died in that attack, but the council members and everyone working there did not. Yeah, I don't, they never really explain. The only thing I can think is like, you know, if your house is destroyed or something, like where you live got destroyed, so you're a casualty. Like it doesn't tra can't track people in real time or something. Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. It's like, yeah, I wasn't able to sort of wrap my head around. It's like, is this? Are you sort of trying to imply that maybe the council members and these cr this crew here are like you know, protected under some sort of you know mechanism in the system here or what? I don't know, but like, yeah, Kirk was standing literally next to her. Yes. So. <laughs> If he lived and she died, it's, it's either like some just very abstract thing or it's a super detailed simulation and just like one piece of building happened to crush her very specifically. Oh no, everyone else is able to get out alive, but uh, you were not. Nothing happened. I know. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? When Kirk accuses her of wanting to give up her life too easily, she explains that if she or others refused to sacrifice themselves, Vendikar would have no choice but to send real weapons, and then they would have to send real weapons, and both civilizations would be destroyed. Everyone loses and everyone dies. Yep. Huh. On mm. the ship, Scotty receives a message from the captain telling them oh. that everything is fine and that everyone on the ship should come down for shore leave 
we get to see that this is Anon using some sort of voice modifier. Uh, Scotty is immediately suspicious and asks the computer to run an analysis on the communication, which concludes that it is a fake. Oh, holy crap. Someone figured out that someone is able to like fake a computer for someone's voice on the show. Yeah. My, my question is, this took all of three seconds. Yes. Why is this not just standard procedure for the computer to do this with every communication? That would make sense, you know, just sort of like a little warning sign and, you know, would go up while it's while you're hearing. It's like, oh, this is not actually who we're talking to. Let's lead them along for a little bit and be all clever. Yeah, like it, it wasn't even complicated. He just goes, computer, was that the captain? No. <laughs> Back on the planet, Spock uses his telepathic abilities to control a guard's mind through the wall to get him to open the door. Because apparently the, uh, the, the locals have uh, some small telepathic abilities, so he's able to like tune into that a little bit and sort of draw him over. So I there's guess. A big, there's, sort of, there's like this long scene of him like mind-milling the door and then the wall to get yeah, him over. Yeah, way too long a scene. But overall, you know, I, I will say that that scene did kind of take a long, long time, but overall, I was kind of surprised that we're like only getting to about halfway through the episode, because like, Seems like we'd be in the like, the final act. You know, I know this was like pacing. Yeah. yeah, this wasn't even halfway through at this point. So it's this this one scene is stupid and drags, but it's the only yeah. one actually. Yeah, <laughs> this works. The guard comes in and Kirk knocks him out. Now they've got a gun, and they go out into the corridor to find their equipment and contact the ship. Let's go, guys! In the corridor, they see a woman go into a small booth in the wall. It closes, a light flashes, it opens again, and the woman is now gone. A man follows her in and does likewise. Hmm. So this might be one of those uh, disintegration chambers they've been mentioning. Yes, they intuit that this is one of the disintegration chambers, and then Kirk intercepts Mia, who was headed for the disintegration machine. He sends Spock in to take out the guards. Spock tells one of the guards that there is a multi-legged creature on his shoulder and then neck pinches him. I find that amusing. Yeah, there's good lines in this one, even. It's well-written episode overall. Hey, why, why couldn't we get more from this Robert <laughs> Hamner guy? <laughs> I know. Kirk shoots the booth, destroying it, despite Mia's objections. The, the booth really burns up pretty well, too. It's, it's pretty... In the control room, Anon is furious that Kirk has escaped and that they are all resisting, so he orders them to fire on the Enterprise and destroy it for their non-compliance. On the bridge, the Enterprise notices that they're being shot with something, but their defensive screens hold it off, and they apparently wouldn't have even noticed if they weren't looking at the sensors. Now, I, I want to point out two things, uh, uh, you know, in this bit of scene here. That First off, Scotty gives a, a log. Uh, so I think this is the first time he's given along like this. Yes. Uh, second, the guy at the, I guess the, the helm or something like that, uh, or, or the, you know, the con, whatever, uh, I think is named to Paul. Yeah. Something like that. Isn't that the one character from enterprise? Yeah. That was the Vulcan in enterprise, yeah. but also, <laughs> also like another Vulcan character that shows up later on. I think this, this is a human weird. Anyway, <laughs> It's all, I don't know. The names just get wonky and strange. So the Enterprise completely no-sells being shot with disruptors because apparently the defensive screens can do whatever. But Scotty <laughs> says that they can't fire full phasers when their screens are up. Uh, That's convenient. Yeah. He's thinking about just, you know, bombarding the planet with photon torpedoes, but Fox enters and orders them to stand down. Well, I guess this uh, prevents Scotty from just murdering millions of people but you know yeah true 
Scotty is a little trigger happy in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Fox believes that being fired on was obviously a mistake, and he just needs to talk to them down on the planet for a solution. Oh, Kirk and company okay. <laughs> return to the holding room they were in, because obviously that's the last place anyone's going to look for them. It just makes sense. Fox reports that they now have weapons, disguises, and an enemy communicator that he might be able to modify to contact the ship. Kirk asks Mia for directions around the facility. She initially refuses, but Kirk gives a speech about how he wants to stop all of the killing, and then she believes that he can help for some reason. Hmm. She she believes him, but still kind of hesitant, but still kind of wants to help. Yeah. She seems kind of torn at this point. It was a weird turnaround. At least he didn't flirt her into submission. Yes, like we've seen in other cool. episodes. Well, I, I I'd suspect that that like character wise, she's like, well, I was kind of cool with dying, kind of. Hmm. Maybe there's is another way. I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Anon is distressed that they have not been able to destroy the Enterprise, and that they have now one fewer disintegration chamber, so they're falling behind and might not meet their deadline for you know, killing all the casualties for Vendicar. Well, no, uh, wait, uh, how many of these things do you guys got? I don't supposed know. To be like, supposed to be taking out, like, hundreds of thousands of people in, the, in like, today. Yeah, and losing one is throwing them behind schedule, I know, it's a bit odd. <laughs> Ambassador Fox calls from the ship, and An tells him that, yes, of course the attack on the ship was a mistake, and that they are eager to open diplomatic talks. He then tells his officers to fire on the Enterprise as soon as it lowers their defenses. He makes plans for Fox to beam down, uh, but despite this, Scotty refuses to lower the defensive screens, even though Fox says that he will report him for insubordination. Scotty's just like, nope, I don't plan on dying today, so yeah, insubordination me up, whatever. Yeah, Scotty's doing good in command. He's like, I ain't dumb, Stop, just shut up. Yep. <laughs> Kirk has found his way to Anon's room, but Anon is very, very unconcerned with this and makes himself a drink. He calls Kirk a barbarian, like all of us are. We are killers first and builders second. This yeah, is no, this is a theme. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kirk demands Anon give him his communicators, uh, and for some reason thinks that threatening his life will do something. Hmm. Yeah, this is a civilization where people like willingly walk into disintegration chambers. Like, I, I don't see why you expect threatening his life is going to suddenly make him uh, cooperate with you. They seemed very um, cool with their own demise here. Yeah. At peace, as it were. Anon pushes a few hidden buttons. Kirk says he's going to destroy the entire planet alone with his disruptor. That's, this kind that's of an interesting Kirk. threat. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, he says, I don't need a ship. <laughs> Anon tells him where to find the communicators as a ploy to get him to go into the hallway and be attacked by several guards. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that Kirk anticipates this, he is still knocked unconscious. Yes. Yeah. You know, Kirk, like, grabs Anon and, like, throws him through the door to try to distract one of the guards. And then there's a bit of a scuffle and there's some, you know, punches and Kirk eventually goes down. Yeah, it's all it's it's your president's stupid fight scene, but it's not as yeah. <laughs> drawn out as some other ones. Yes, uh, I'll say that Kirk only went down because he'd been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Fox beams down with his attaché, dude we've never seen before, and you know dies shortly. But yep. <laughs> as soon as he lands, Anon tells him that they're casualties, and he takes them to a disintegration chamber. Oh well, this is uh, highly irregular. Um. Uh, uh, what do you mean, disintegration chamber? Spock manages to open communications with the ship, and Scotty tells him that Fox just beamed down. 
Uh oh. <laughs> Guess we gotta go save Ambassador No Fun. Yep. Spock leaves Tamora to guard Mila and takes the two security guards who are now dressed as. Uh, I wrote this down, Amedians, because it's a weird conjugation. <laughs> They're dressed yeah, as security so- <laughs> guards from the planet to go save Fox before he's about to be disintegrated. Mm-hmm. They managed to do that, but. In the council room, Anand tells Kirk that the crew needs to turn themselves over because if they don't, Vendikar is going to attack and have actual you know, bombs and things because they will have violated their agreement. Because yeah, uh, remember, you know, in, in the simulation, they're like dropping fusion bombs, like, you know, you know, grade A crazy dukes and things like that. Real terrible stuff. And this is the simulated war. They're worried they're going to actually start dropping actual dukes on them. Yes. He calls the Enterprise to tell them to beam people down, but Kirk yells General Order 24 in two hours and before he's pulled away from the communication device. So maybe you should have, like, hit push to talk on that uh, control there, sir guy. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Anon threatens to kill Kirk if the Enterprise doesn't surrender, but Kirk explains that General Order 24 is that the Enterprise is going to destroy Amini R7 from orbit in two hours. And uh, Kirk's super smug about this. Like, well, I guess I don't get to watch you die, so eh. And in the meantime, Spock has blown up another one of their disintegration chambers. Mm-hmm. Kirk just all of a sudden commandos out and takes out all the guards and holds everyone who was in the command room at gunpoint just as Spock comes in. Well, I, I would like to add a little bit to that scene because Anon is like super aghast. It's like everything's falling apart and like... He seems to be sort of like, you know, asking for someone to help him. And like one of the guards just kind of wanders up, like about to offer a suggestion. And then Kirk's like, aha. <laughs> yeah, they are a little distracted. It's still one of these times that he takes out like six dudes with guns. Yes. Like this, <laughs> just this because... just shouldn't work. One guy with a gun shouldn't be able to hold up six guys with guns. Yes. <laughs> Kirk's just like, I'm just going to toss people around. And then suddenly I'm the one in charge. <laughs> yeah. Kirk gives a speech about how they've taken all of the horribleness out of war, all the things that make it something that should be avoided, and now they don't have any reason to ever stop. Hmm. We'll get into that. Yes, I I could extrapolate more, but yeah. yeah. He and Spock then destroy the war computer. So specifically, they target the bit that uh, communicates to the war computer on the other planet. Yeah, but they basically blow up the whole thing. Like, the whole room explodes. In fact, there's this whole uh, bit of, like, you got you get everyone out in the hallway. This is going to be intense. It, it actually is, like, super intense because there's, like, smoke and fire and, like, the computer is, like, going crazy. And it's, like, you, you there's the running gag that consoles in Star Trek are made of explodium. This is thing doubly so. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, like, not safe to work around these things. Yes. <laughs> Anon is now proper terrified because... Without the computers to run the simulation, they'll have no choice but to wage real, actual warfare. Mm-hmm. Kirk suggests that they could instead make peace, but Anon says that they've admitted to themselves that they are a killer species, and it's just instinctive. Kirk says, yeah, of course we're a killer species, but all, let's just choose not to kill someone today. Yeah. That's all you need to do. Just go like, today I'm not going to kill anybody. So uh, let's, let's play nice as opposed to the, just the murdering, yes. Fox decides to take pity on Anon and says that he'll help them with their peace talks with Vendikar. <laughs> Wait a moment, uh, Ambassador doesn't understand what the hell's going on most of the time, he's going to be helping? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Everyone's back on the bridge. Fox sent a communication that peace talks are underway and seem to be going well. 
Spock says that Kirk took a really big chance, but Kirk says that it was just a calculated risk because a real attack would have killed just as many people as their fake attacks, but it would have destroyed infrastructure and maybe actually ended their ability to keep killing each other. So the war would come to an end as opposed to being dragged on forever. Yes. Spock says that Kirk almost makes him believe in luck, and Kirk says Spock almost makes him believe in miracles. Yeah, I think that one's actually kind of amusing, so... I'll, I'll give them props there. Yeah, the end. Hooray. I don't think they knew how to end this episode. Yes. Well, it seems to be the running theme with Star Trek episodes so far. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so a, a taste of Armageddon that was. And, yes. Uh, it was tasty. I, I freaking hate all the speeches at the end. <laughs> they had such a good premise going up to then. Well, you gotta, you gotta, you know, make the point clear to your audience that maybe isn't paying attention. Yeah, but they get so Hobbesian. Yeah, <laughs> they just go like one hundred percent Hobbesian on it. No, like you know, this was a pointless war, or like you know, there are some very valid points to be made here. That like you don't seem to be fighting over anything, so. Yeah. There's no way for either side to actually win this conflict or reach a stalemate or do anything because you don't seem to have any particular stakes or goals. You are fighting for fighting's sake in the in the very quote of fighting. <laughs> Instead of getting into any kind of thing like that, they get into this dumb Hobbesian thing of like men are just inherently violent and we're going to like kill each other by nature uh nietzsche had a thing of that as well of like mm -hmm. human beings are inherently warlike as part of like my inner core instinctual being so uh you gotta be either embracing it or suppressing it or doing something with it yeah like quite honestly i find it horrifying that there was like a generation of people running around who were told that you know wanting to kill someone all the time is natural you just have to like decide not to do it on a day-to-day -day basis and it, it se seems to imply that the world is perpetually about to explode and uh you know basically i, I guess I, I didn't think i was you know, going to be talking about this but it does remind me of the whole premise of the the purge movies yeah. Uh, that, oh, obviously all the bad things are caused because of this reason and if we just sort of give a release valve then maybe we'll be able to control ourselves better. I and mean, that that's not really true. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's also really undermines their analogy. Yeah. Because this this episode was written in and came out during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. This episode is is one hundred percent meant to be a critique of the Vietnam War. <laughs> yes. It's a war that is being fought uh, you know, in a very theoretical sort of uh, fashion in the show, but it is in, you know, in a, a, a way, a, a proxy war, a war that is being fought by other people. And sure, there are deaths, but the deaths are so painless and so, you know, clean that it's sort of like, well, it just, you know, this, this person's now long, no longer existing. It's no, yeah. no suffering, no, 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 you know, reason to sort of be horrified. It just sort of, this is a way of life. This is the way things are. Things are just going day to day. And sure, stuff happens occasionally where, oh, you might be called in to go to the uh, suicide booth here. But, you know, it just keeps things right and proper in our society here. Everything's at back home. It's, it's generally nice and everything's just working out and everything's happy-go-lucky. Yeah, it's very much their, their basic premise 
the basic thing they keep saying that like the people are dying but the civilization and everything isn't being harmed is basically how the united states has fought every war since the mexican-american war Kinda, yeah <laughs> because like the united states is so separated from the rest of the world by oceans mm -hmm. that like conflicts in eurasia and like do not reach the united states like that's why pearl harbor was such a massive massive deal to get us into world war ii because america just did not get attacked at home it, it did not happen so looking at this like you have the computer conflict in this but the the thing they're actually going for is you know we're sending people off to vietnam this completely far-flung place we have absolutely no particular stakes in this like if we if we lose a bunch of people over there it does not affect our infrastructure or the mm -hmm. people on in, on the mainland at all like we have no no connection to this conflict aside from people dying in it yeah and so i, I was thinking while i was watching this episode it's like you know i wonder if there's like any sort of nefarious structure to uh how the uh yeah you know the selection of uh, people is determined and i'm kind of surprised they didn't have something like that but i guess it uh, might have uh, muddled the general themes they're going for. yeah well they don't go into it on that but the so the reason that this idea comes up the reason that I think the reason that it came up for you, I had that thought as well. So did my girlfriend when I was talking this episode over with her. And the reason this comes up is because this is not a war. This is an extreme state of peace. This is a this is an ironclad peace treaty between these two planets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like the the amount of the amount of diplomacy and politics that would have had to go in to making this agreement function in the first place is an unprecedented level of cooperation. Yes, uh, it's it's sort of a, you know, okay, we're going to have these premises and we all agreed that this is going to be the eventual outcome. So let's work together to just kind of make it less terrible for us. And so, yeah, so what if it lasts for centuries? That's future generations have to worry about that. We're going to... Yeah, sort out all these detailed plans, build this computer system that's completely insane, and uh, link our two plans together in that system. And, uh, you know, it basically requires them to be working together very, very closely in order to have this, you know, st status quo be established. Yeah, so the reason that it seems ripe for exploitation is because it is not a warfare, it is a system of state control. Yep. And this gets us to Foucault. So tell us about Foucault. Yeah, we haven't talked about Foucault before, I don't think. Uh, he is an incredibly influential, slightly more contemporary philosopher who's basically one of the fathers of uh, postmodernism. Indeed. And Foucault was very, very concerned with the functions of power. Power. Real ultimate power. Not ultimate power, like... Okay. <laughs> individual power <laughs> people power so for for the purposes of this episode Foucault never really talked about war but he did talk a lot about the purpose of the state and mm. Foucault's premise is that the state maintains a monopoly on violence and because if uh, someone is say breaking the law 
the police can go and uh, you know and apprehend that person and use all sorts of uh, you know, means to do such, and including potentially killing that person, depending on what sort of things going on. And uh, but the you know the, the officer who was committing this you know act is not you know you know generally going to be uh, held responsible for the you know the death of the person. Uh, you know, in that case. Well, yeah, there's all kinds of things. So uh, Foucault and a lot of other philosophers that, that look at this, this power system tend to define violence as anything that limits another person's autonomy. Indeed. So, you know, you go from, you know, uh, my examples of the extreme, you know, example, you even push it on to like some people, you know, will say that like, you know, taxation is a form of violence. Because you're 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 being deprived of property in some fashion. Yeah, or you know, keeping people out of certain parts of the country, or you know, whatever, anything that prevents you from being able to do what you want to do at all times can be defined as some type of violence. Yeah, it's, it's some sort of enforced mechanism where you know you're basically being told no. The reason that you can say that the state maintains a monopoly on and can distribute violence. Uh, not only just through some very obvious means like the control of the military and the police force, but also through the basic framework of things like laws, because the government gets to decide and is the final word on what actually counts as violence. Mm -hmm. Like if, if two people attack each other, it's the government say whether one, both or neither is actually held accountable for that action. Indeed. So they get to decide what is defined as violence amongst people. You know, is this uh, throwing a punch you know, considered violence? Is me shooting the person with a, a gun violence? Or is me uh, insulting their mother violence? Yeah, These and as we've seen things, in many, many depressing examples in the last few years, uh, especially in, a, in the United States, the government like doles out these ideas of what counts as violence very very unequally indeed you know you know a little you know a snide word from one person will get you maybe a stern look and will get you uh, beat down in another you know you know different case it might come down to your your class or race or even gender yeah so so even when you are not at war according to foucault the government is still maintaining a state of war, essentially, to control its citizenry. Yes. Uh, Foucault has this quote and says, politics is just the continuation of war through other means. That's a, yeah, that's kind of a tight quote there, yeah. <laughs> so that's why I was looking at Foucault for this episode, because this isn't war. This is the government taking a system that they've put in place, this computer simulation, and saying, like, according to this computer simulation, this is how we are going to dole out violence. Indeed. And so they, uh, you know, every year they, you know, kill off a million people or more. And that's like, oh, that's all the violence we need. So uh, that will keep and maintain the peace in our society and will uh, not be attacked by those other people you've never met. And we've been at war with for centuries, you know, like we've always been at war with East Asia. Yes. <laughs> this also gets us to an interesting thing on kind of the... Uh, the definitions and purposes of nationalism. So uh, there's two guys that I wanted to talk about for nationalism. One is a guy named Benedict Anderson, who oh, wrote, I I know that one. He wrote an essay called Imagined Communities. And his kind of premise is just, 
what is nationalism but a way to create an imagined community of people who have never met? So you know, the camaraderie between people of you know, you know, different backgrounds from different parts of the same country who have never met, yes. Yeah, he so, yeah. basically said that the most extreme representation of the absurdity of nationalism is the tomb of the unknown soldier. Could be anybody in there. Yes. Even you. The only thing that you know about this tomb is that it is supposed to maintain someone who is of the same nationality as you. And that is supposed to connect you to them and their story on a very deep level, even though you know nothing else about them. It's a, uh, effectively a variable in the sort of mathematical sense where you have an unknown but it's, it's, it's being implied that this equals you. Yeah. And then another, another idea for nationalism, which is very uh, apropos for this episode and the Vietnam conflict that it is you know, meant to be a representation of, is a, a sociologist named uh, Juan Galting has this idea that nationalism and the way that it is used to remember wars which they they keep talking about in this episode is like you know if if you can know how horrible war is going to be you would not do it this is an idea that came out of kind of world war one the like war to end all wars we've gone through such a horrifying conflict that all we need to do is remember how horrifying this conflict was and we will never engage in warfare again. We, we all see how well that worked out. Yep. <laughs> it's like, well, we you use different weapons now and uh, you know, there's less mustard gas usually, but um, yeah, we keep doing wars. So Galtag's idea is that nationalistically, the only reason to remember past violence is to justify future violence. Because yeah, uh, if you... Uh you know, we're victorious last time. It's like, well, we are powerful and thus we are mighty and thus we are, you know, morally, you know, justified in our actions. Or if you are the losing side of the war, it's like, well, we need to recoup our, our glory and, you know, you know, and uh, make ourselves, you know, powerful again, that sort of stuff. Exactly. He had what he called glory points and trauma points. Mm -hmm. So if you yeah. share a glory point, it's like, yes, we did right. Therefore, we should do right again. And the trauma point is exactly as you said. We we suffered this trauma, therefore we have a right to retaliate. Uh, he came up with this idea called the DMA complex, uh, DMA complex, which is what is he believes is used to justify future warfare. Uh, D stands for dichotomy, meaning that the war was split into two parties, us and them. Uh, M is Manichian, meaning that it was an absolute. We were absolute good and they were absolute evil. Hmm. And A is Armageddon. The war was important. It was, a, it was perhaps even apocalyptically important. It was completely justified because it was an Armageddon-level conflict. It's definitely your vibes of a World War II here, by the way. Yes. So his basic premise is the, the only reason to remember war quite apart from this idea that they posit in this episode that recognizing the horrors of war would prevent war is recognizing the horrors of war can be used to justify further war you know and that seems to be exactly what's going on here technically 
You know, it's like we are, we keep fighting because we don't want to experience the terrible things that were before we had this, this system in place. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting idea. They've, they've reversed it in this episode mm-hmm. because it's, uh, we, we have to keep killing ourselves so that we won't kill each other. Yeah. <laughs> instead of remember how horrifying the last war was how could they have done that to us let's get them yeah, inversion but it's his c- c- kind of clever one yeah and i think overall they did a good job until like i said they get to all the hobbesian stuff right at the end and like we've we've talked about hobbes before but he did have this like uh in the state of nature we exist as a war between every man against every man and, uh, you know everything sucks and everyone's just kind of angry and evil yeah, and, uh, we have to sort of rein that in intentionally, and uh, and that's why we build our society and things like that to sort of you know constrain us so we don't go crazy and kill everybody. Yeah, but but if they define the reasons for warfare as the fact that we as a species are just inherently violent, there's really no way to justify not doing it if it's just an instinctual level drive of humanity. There's like no particular reason that you should, no particular reason you shouldn't. It's just how we are. Yeah, it's sort of, uh, yeah, it lacks a, uh, a contrast point in a way. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like if, if this is how we are, then, you know, then, you know, exactly what you're saying, you, you know, why bother with anything else? Why not just continue as, as these violent, you know, crazy people? Yeah, it's a little disappointing that that's the angle they took from this episode because everything else they did was building pretty well. Well, I guess to a certain extent, you could say, you know, argue that one should just sort of ignore uh, Anon Sevens and Kirk's sort of uh, you know banter on on that point entirely, and the episode just so much more better. <laughs> yeah, it would work better. Like they're they, I wish they'd gone into like a reasonless conflict. Like you cannot, you cannot win a reasonless conflict because there's no way to win. They don't mm-hmm. seem to be fighting over anything. Yeah, well, it does seem to be the case to a certain extent. There was some you mentioned of like yeah, there were some disagreements about something you know back in the day, and and uh, that's well kind of irrelevant at this point. But yeah, yeah, they do talk about you know it's 500 years, so we just keep fighting because we've been fighting. It is kind of interesting. I had it pointed out at one point that uh, they they keep talking about how this is going to preserve their culture. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 people will die, but the civilization and the culture will live on. Well, uh, it's that it was kind of something that was bothering me in the episode too. That they're making this argument, which I I have to very much disagree with. You know, but this is like the, the characters are making this argument, not necessarily like the show itself. So yes. I, I do want to sort of, you know, draw that apart. That culture is not like works of art. It's not buildings. A good portion of culture is the people involved. And if you are killing millions of them, you are harming the culture. Well, it depends a little bit on the culture that you're looking at. Because True. This civilization has existed in a state of war for 500 years. That's, that's several generations at this point have got have grown up completely in this state of war. Mm-hmm. Being at war, quote, in this way, is their culture. Yeah. So I guess it makes sense. At yeah. the end, when they change that, when they start moving towards a state of peace where they no longer have to do this, that by definition destroyed their culture so they, they've had a little bit of revolution here yeah like you 
you have existed in this state for so long. That is your cultural reference point. So you've completely changed your culture. You don't have this thing. Nobody's going to have to like march themselves to death at any point anymore. You no longer have to justify this to yourself or your people. You are having a complete upending of of like a major cultural touch point. And now you can kind of be whatever you want to be and not be that finally. So I guess it's a bit a bit liberating in more than one way here. Yeah, I mean we can we can definitely look at this and say a culture that doesn't need to kill millions of its own people every year is better but it's definitely not the same culture i guess in some ways this reminds me of the previous episode uh, the return of the archons there yeah uh, where they're you know, talking about you know it's like oh you, this is a civilization that you know we can't interfere with the evolution of you know cult uh, cultures and things like that uh, well this one's not you know uh, you know evolving said kirk you know previously there well, this is kind of the same thing in a way then yeah they did it again is, yeah. <laughs> Kirk but shows they, up, goes, what are you doing here? No, do it my way. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I guess in this instance, there was a uh, a little bit extra motivation for Kirk to, uh, it's like, well, we ha- you know don't necessarily have the, uh, you know, uh, you know, random moment where we could beam out of here and just call everything good. We, we actually are kind of stuck here. So, hmm. yeah. <laughs> Though the entire time, the, the Enterprise could have just left. I mean, I guess you could look at it realistically and say, like, the ship was never in any actual danger. Except when the uh, bastard told him to drop the shields. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, apparently, as long as those shields are up, the ship is invulnerable. Invincible Enterprise. I like the sound of that. Yeah, they do that. Apparently, they haven't figured out the idea that, like, the shields could be damaged or something yet. Every time we've seen them in a conflict, it's like, well, our screens are up, so we're good. We're, we're, we're semi-immortal here. Don't worry about it. Mm. You guys down there, you just keep killing each other. Uh, or yourselves, I guess. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they could have just left. Like, I mean, they, they would have had to kind of leave like Kirk and Spock there. So, yeah, but they couldn't do that. Uh, you, know, you know, Scotty's like, I want to kill somebody, but I also can't leave the captain and Spock, I guess. And maybe those other people beam down too. Hmm. <laughs> that was kind of the, that was the one thing that I was thinking of not, that I didn't particularly like in this episode. Like if if this was was a next generation episode, if they'd had basically the same plot, uh, Kirk would have beamed up to the ship, and kind of the last line of the thing would have been Scotty just going like, "But there was no General Order 20. Yep, <laughs> I was thinking that myself. It's like it's like oh yeah, so hmm. <laughs> So apparently they do have a general order that is glass the planet. Yes, <laughs> which uh, just kind of implies that this federation of peace-loving people might not necessarily have the uh, you know the peace-loving rules at play all mm-hmm. the time here. Hmm. All right, that was all of my depressing things. What are your depressing things? Well, I, I wanted to talk about uh, something a little. You know, we, we've gone through like World War One. We've gone through a little bit of World War Two and Vietnam. Let's go to more modern conflicts. How I'm talking about jo- uh, drone warfare. Ooh, hooray! Yes. So uh, one of the themes was that uh, this particular side of conflict is, you know, as we've already explained, you know, very you know, detached from the, the horrors of war. And uh, drone warfare is sort of the next evolution in the real world, sort of. Uh, pushing of that limit 
where no longer are you even worrying about someone dying when you're going to war. You're sending a uh, robot that's remotely controlled to in enact violence on someone on the other side of the planet and, uh, in a very controlled fashion. And that further divorces the uh, risks and uncertainty of, of uh, you know, you know, the, the horrors of war from those who are being on the, you know, more technologically or aggressive side on things. Yeah, so. though, like, interestingly, they've they've been doing psychological research on this. Mm -hmm. And quite apart from it completely separating the people from the conflict, it actually could be psychologically worse because hmm. the people who are running these drones the soldiers who we put in charge of of carrying out these drone strikes uh, have to still be engaged in the conflict they still have to watch people die yes but then they go home mm -hmm. they go directly from killing people to like their house as if they're just working an office job indeed it is it is so separated. I'm certainly on no level saying that you know frontline combat is is not bad for you, both physically and psychologically. It is it is horrific on both counts. But the the sudden juxtaposition, like in there, it's all in context. You're in a horrible situation the entire way. If you are you know a soldier piloting a remote drone, you are going from what is essentially frontline combat to normal domestic life in the course of a day. Indeed. Yeah, a little bit of a whiplash. Yeah. And I just need to like go into that a little bit, like like especially with this, just just the way that that we in the United States deal with the mental state of our troops after conflicts is horrific. It's it's pretty crap overall. Yeah, we we do basically nothing to to help soldiers reintegrate themselves into society. Like, well, you know, you know, here's your uh, you know your welcome home party. Now um, here's your you know the number to call VA if you have any problems. But other than that, bye. Yeah, and then we also have no general general psychology. Like we've only sort of started to get an idea of how to deal with some of these problems. Uh, like I've, I've, I was reading a book about, uh, general, general trauma treatments. Um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name right now, but the, the author basically worked in, in the trauma field for a very long time. And he started doing like VA appointments and the, the general thing that they were supposed to do in there was not working to this extreme degree. That's what led him to start like looking at alternate treatment systems, but they aren't actually using any of those, the ones that he found that seem to maybe have a little more promise. They're using, uh, well, one of the most common ones is a cognitive behavioral practice called uh, kind of exposure therapy, where, where you basically uh, make the person recount the horrible experience they went through in detail over and over and over again. Uh, the the idea being that that will make it lessen the impact it has because you're you're remembering it in a calm environment. Sort of uh, in some in some ways when you you know you know kind of goes back to you know some of the stuff we talked about like memory and things like that. Uh, that uh, when you recall a memory, you are in some ways you know you know kind of modifying it as well. 
And so this is sort of trying to use that trick to sort of ease things in. Yeah, sort of. Except uh, traumatic memories are stored in a different way than yeah. non-traumatic memories. So, yeah, it's only so much effectiveness here. Yeah, and this is, I don't, like, there's some research on this. Like, it's it's a cognitive therapy, so there's been a lot of research on it. But But there's a... There's something like a 60% dropout rate for this kind of therapy amongst soldiers. I wonder why. Could it be all the living through horribleness again over and over again? Like, people don't want to participate in this. It is a horrible thing for people to go through. It's like, well, you know, it's like, okay, we can uh, we can fix your broken angle here, but we're going to have to break your arm a few times first. What? Yeah. Part of me part of me feels like I need to walk this back. I'm, in, I'm inherently critical of cognitive behavioral theories, uh, they, they really don't work for me and I've had some negative experiences with them and I will admit that has colored my opinions somewhat. Um, but overall, I've seen better ways to deal with this. But, you know, if if this is something that has worked for you, great. You know, overall, anything that has worked for you to help deal with anything in your life, great. Like, go with it and I never want to take that away from anyone. Yeah, uh, I, th I think, uh, you know, we, we should both sort of, you know, mention that there, yeah, exactly this. The uh, There is, people operate in very many different fashions and there's sort of lots of general stuff that's true of uh, pretty much everybody, but there's going to be things that specifically work better for you than other things. And, uh, you know, they, you know, so some folks might be, you know, more attuned to this kind of therapy or a different kind of therapy. And this is both on the mental side, on the, you know, like physical side, like some drugs are more effective for some people than other people. And so it's sort of be... You know, you know, don't don't assume that a one size fits all approach is is the way to go here. Yeah, and you know, it, I'll I'll completely admit I am prone to be overly critical of of behavioral psychology. I've done yep. a lot of reading <laughs> about this sort of stuff, and people don't really like this kind of treatment in general. Mm -hmm. But that's a bit of a tangent. Just you know, uh, it. You can't remove, like, the horrors of war from someone dying. There's yeah, this kind was... of... This, this was something that I was really thinking about kind of in this episode with this kind of general premise of we are, we are a killer species. That cannot possibly be true. It's more of a suicidal species at this point. <laughs> like, apart from any of the, like, general stuff that we are, that we are doing... Seeing someone get killed, seeing someone die or seeing someone get killed, seeing another human in that kind of suffering or state universally does negative things to your brain. Yeah. Like, like this is this is the same across all cultures and for like basically every account we can find. There's, in fact, even very similar uh, symptoms across across the records of this like apparently it's very very common if if you feel in any way responsible for someone's death especially if you were like a soldier or a police officer or an executioner or someone who had to be very involved in someone's death it's it's very very common for you to have nightmares of them sitting on the end of your bed oh. and this is like a common thing that has been written about for for years and years and it just it boggles my mind that people want to cling to this idea that we are naturally violent and have an instinctual need or want to kill each other when as a social species we we cannot function in that way 
like like seeing other people die has such a negative impact on your mind you would not have evolved that if the common state of you know history was that we were all killing each other all the time for very little reason i just can't help but because of this this uh, social nature of human beings you know think that maybe the uh, the hobbesian sort of view is born more out of the mixture of desperation in society like if you're like you know starving and it's like oh i'm gonna go and like hold this guy up so i get some money and buy paste for some food or something like that you know sort of thing as well as the extreme cases well this person actually has you know different brain chemistry and is, is kind of psycho uh, psychopath here uh and sort of using those as the prime examples like oh obviously this is everybody but that's not really true <laughs> Uh, we can we can talk about the Hobbesian state of nature, especially with natu- nationalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, the Hobbesian state of nature, the you know brutal, short, whatever. Uh, basically, any state of nature supposes a primitive human being. It is this idea that that outside of a society you you exist in this different way and it it posits that that people can exist outside of a society which to us is patently ridiculous yes you know once once you start interacting with each other you are forming a society kind of by happenstance but at the time when state of natures were being commonly used in philosophy it was being used to justify colonialism Mm -hmm. because you can find these other groups of people who don't exist in the same sort of technological way that you do and define them as being a lesser civilization who exists closer to the state of nature. So you got this sort of like, well, I guess we can now uh, sort of, uh, you know, know, apply our our, our new system of, of betterness on them and sort of integrate them and make them a part of our, our good society here because uh, you know that that's the only way to sort of save them from their, their their violent ways. Yeah and not only that but it it let it was largely used to justify property rights hmm. because well, they, they obviously are having society here so this land can be ours now. Yeah, they're not using it. They're not using the land because they are existing in a state of nature. They just exist around it on the land. They're not actually using it for anything. But what I'm hunting here. What, what, what gives, man? My house is over there. What? Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's basically the problem that you hit. <laughs> so, yeah, it was. You can't just claim our land. We live here. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah, no mm-hmm. flag, no country. Yeah, it was it was basically completely used to justify colonialist thinking of the time. And that is where the state of nature idea comes from, is from justifying European domination over what they considered to be lesser societies. Indeed. And so you, you got this idea that sort of has hung with us in the various uh, uh, philosophical, uh, you know, uh, uh, progeny that sort of, you know, spawned out of the era and that sort of keeps coming back. Yeah. I mean, we we talked a bit uh, we talked a bit last episode about how all of our all of our um, eugenics ideas still populate our laws today, 
um, how, how spooky that is. Yeah, I mean, we're we're still we're still using that like the the Hobbesian state of nature idea, or just anybody's state of nature idea that that you can exist as these simplistic peoples and whatever is like it's it's still being used to to declare domination of native peoples all over the globe. Indeed. And it's a little frightening and kind of upsetting. Yeah, that seems like a fairly major tangent from where we started, though. <laughs> started with, you know, Star Trek and drone warfare. <laughs> yeah. All things uh, eventually lead to racism. A little bit. Hmm. Well, I, you know, the, the other thing is, uh, you know, because you know, there's the, the, the soldier side of things. But, you know, I want to talk about the drone warfare, which we covered. But there's also the other side, the everybody else side of the uh, of that sort of conflict. You know, I remember back in the 90s where anytime the U.S. would get into any uh, even minor uh, kerfluffle, it's like, oh, we are now sending planes over to bomb Serbia or something like that now. And it was like, holy crap, this is like the biggest thing ever. Well, now the U.S. is basically bombing Yemen daily. And there's not, like, any discussion about this in the news at all. Because it's sort of just such a common occurrence, because most of this is done through drone warfare. There's no, uh, you know, physical risk to the you know, people piloting here. And so it just sort of gets lowered down the uh, totem pole of, um, you know, of, uh, of priorities here. And so you, know, you sort of like, well, it doesn't really matter to the people back at home, because none of our people are actually in danger anymore. You know, independent of you know psychological uh, back, you know, you know, you know, issues with the uh, people flying the uh, the actual craft. Yeah, which but, is something uh, that we don't want to admit to, and so aren't going to use to talk about wars in the news cycle. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a complicated issue. We can't talk about complicated things here. Huh. And so uh, you know, you might occasionally get a uh, you know a glimpse of it here or there, but it's uh, you know pretty much it's like you know it's made war very very easy for the United States at this point. The, uh, and so conflicts can potentially rage all across the planet, and we never are going to hear about it. I think we also hit a thing very similar to this episode um, that essentially there has been on and off, and most of it has been like police actions or, or proxy conflicts or, you know, various little, little hoo-hahs. Mm -hmm. um, the United States has essentially been at a state of war since Vietnam. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> uh, on uh, a, a previous uh, uh, job of mine, I uh, was uh, you know, working closely with the uh, you know, government folks, and they basically pointed out, like, yeah, since before most of the people that you were in this room were born, the United States has pretty much been, you know, you know, uh, you know, at a state of conflict, and you guys have been, you know, people working here have been, you know, involved in that in some fashion. And so it's sort of like, yeah, that's that's true and also frightening. Uh, you know, the United States really hasn't seen peace in quite some time. Mm -hmm. So you, you can hit that same sort of thing. It becomes what you grew up in. It becomes normal, everyday stuff. Mm -hmm. Similar to how they were talking about this and, like, this is just how we've always done things in this 500-year conflict... Like you even you were pointing out, like using drones, like limits the personal risk, so we don't have to talk about it. But we're still losing, we're still losing thousands of people in ground wars. 
all over yeah. the world that we barely talk about. It's not so much the fact that we've separated ourselves from risk. It's that we have been in these conflicts for so long. And so I remember in the, uh, you know, I guess the first few years, of the, the uh, uh, you know, more recent Iraq conflict, uh, there were, you know, sort of a accounting total of people, uh, you know, on the, on the anti-war side, you know, sort of totaling up behind people on the, uh, the American side of, have died. And there was a, attempts that were always kind of like, well, we're not entirely certain about people, you know, how many people on the other side uh, ended up dying as well. You know, both, uh, you know, combatants and civilians. And uh, the, the numbers were, you know, you know, you know, climbing up into the thousands on the U.S. side and much more than that on everybody else's side. And it's sort of, you know, and even now at this point, those kind of, you know, you know, pronouncements of uh, numbers is kind of not really a thing anymore. And it's like we've just gotten so tired of counting that people don't count anymore. And then we just kind of don't know. Yeah, it it really does get into a thing Like the longer the longer you've been in conflict, the more used to it it becomes, especially I mean, I suppose this is just very apt for the episode, especially since it has little to no impact on most people's everyday lives. Indeed. So, uh, so, so, so in some ways, this planet could be the future of us down the line, in a way. Except for there. Well, like we're not killing <laughs> other, off our than, own citizenry at this, like yeah, in this know, way. Other than the other than the suicide boats, but I mean, as far as like the the the, uh, the attitudes of like, oh yeah, we've always been at war here, and these yeah. are the consequences, and they are very limited, and we're cool with that. Well, if you want to get into the thing with that, obviously, like being a, a an analogy for the Vietnam War, the suicide booth, like the government just picking out people to go die. Obviously, yep. the draft. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Which you could make arguments for with our current recruiting methods that uh, target low-income areas and are coercive and do all these like various things to ensure certain types of people join the military. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, it's no longer a lottery that still skews towards the you know the you know uh, underprivileged here, but now it's just well, we're only going for the people that don't you know you know have money on, on them or. You know, you know, can't get daddy to, uh, you know, pay for a super expensive education and a job for life. You know, all that fun stuff. Yeah. You're struggling, you're, your family's struggling, and you, you know, want to make a life in your, you know, for yourself, but don't see any of the other options. Well, here you go. You can go and uh, kill people for a few years and uh, you come back and you'll maybe have some GI benefits, depending on what happens, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there is actually... A certain brilliance to the way that they did the analogy, like specifically calling out that the casualties were all civilian. Yeah. Because it lets you just look at it in that kind of way of how many people are dying. The minute you call it a soldier, the minute you call a casualty a soldier, you can immediately discount it. Like, oh, well, it's horrible that they died, but. Isn't that what soldiers are for? Yeah, that's uh, it. It is kind of weird how there there is that disconnect there. You know, and, uh, to a certain extent, we should be caring about anybody, independent of their civilian or soldier status. Yeah, but we we created a we've created a culture around warfare that, like, especially in the United States, because we can be so separated from it, soldiers are the only ones who engage in warfare. Soldiers like 
are chosen and trained and all this stuff to engage in the warfare and dying in the war is just a part of the job that they are doing we've turned it into like another like hazardous profession yeah oh that got like super dark yeah well um maybe we should uh, change the tone a little bit is it time for the galaxy's favorite game show oh i think it is <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Galaxy's ga favorite game show. I'm Doctor Isaac. I'm gonna give out some, uh, you know, awards for their their high scores today on these various things here. So, our uh, first award is going to be going to, uh, you know, well, pretty much everybody on MNR Seven and Velkar for the last 500 years. All of them collectively get this one. It's called the Gunshots by Computer Award because they're using computers to incite death constantly, forever, apparently, until now. Haha. Uh -huh. What do they win, Gepwin? Everyone in this episode wins. Would you like to play a game of global thermonuclear war? Oh. No, that's quite the whopper you got there. Hmm. <laughs> Our uh, second award is It's a Fake! Goes to Scotty for figuring out very quickly that wasn't Kirk on the phone. What does he win, Gapwood? Scotty wins the highest accommodation Starfleet can offer because this is the first time someone's figured out something on this show. Holy smokes, I think you're right. Good job, Scotty. You're like our super genius for the rest of the series, for sure, right? Hmm. Our uh, third award is the Incompetent Guest Star Award, which goes to Ambassador Fox for not really having a clue what the heck's going on and almost gets murdered for it. Where does he win, Gepwin? Ambassador Fox wins exactly what he got, being exiled to a far corner of the galaxy talking to a bunch of people who don't want to be there. So in other words, he's going to be stuck in the globular cluster for who knows how long. Good for him. Ho-ho! Our final award is the Risky Moral Calculus Award, which goes to Kirk for taking the risks to that right lead to millions of lives being snuffed out by uh, horrible weapons of future war. What does he win, Gepwin? For nearly killing millions and millions of people, Kirk wins just, I don't know, living through the 60s. I'm sure it was terrible. No, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, both the 2260s and the 1960s, apparently. Oh, yes. So good job, Kirk, I guess. <laughs> oh, thank you for joining us to all of our contestants, and I hope all of you have enjoyed your time here on the galaxy's favorite game show. Woohoo! <laughs> Next episode. I don't know, like, what this is. It's, a, it's an episode where they're on a planet. Yeah. And they're happy. It is called This Side of Paradise. Hmm. The crew is attacked by spores. Neat. That's all I know. So so, so they're going to get all, you know, you know going to have some fun on Paradise here? They're going to have some encounters with some fun guys? Yeah, fun guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess if they are on spores and are happy, it's a weirdly pro-drug episode. So I guess we got that to look forward to. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I've never actually... I don't think I've ever seen this one. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm doubtful I have either. So well, this is going to be interesting. Oh, well, you can join us as we are confused, but hopefully a lot less depressing next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the planet of the Lotus Eaters. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcasts, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>